The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. Uh, before I read the scripture, I just wanted to share a, a brief experience from this weekend that I felt like I was supposed to share with you. Uh, knowing I was going to be reading uh, the scripture this morning, I, I read it for the first time uh, Friday evening and started thinking about what the meaning of the, the passage was and then um, was reading it some more yesterday and wondering what God had for us and actually felt led to pray for Paul uh, that God would give him uh, the message that we were supposed to hear. And it was interesting, in that moment, I felt like the Holy Spirit gently said, why don't you do this every weekend? Uh, just in a way of preparing for the message. Um, look, you have the opportunity with the passage that's there, we get it in our email. Um, so if you're like me, I uh, just wanted to encourage you to think about uh, that as well, that we would come with uh, expectant hearts and, uh, and ready for what God has for us. Today's scripture reading is from Isaiah 56, one through eight. Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my deliverance be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name, better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Howard. Thank you, and good morning, everyone. My name is Paul Lim, and I serve at Christ Press as the uh, scholar in residence, which means that about six times a year I get to uh, preach, share from the, God, uh, from the Word of God, and for other Sundays I teach uh, adult Sunday school classes, which is always a great, great delight. So, um, so a few caveats about today's sermon. Um, the text and the title, in both cases, I didn't choose them. The text was given to me, the title was given to me. So more often than not, I feel like I'm writing my college application essay all over again. There was a famous one from the University of Chicago in 2011 that went like this. What does Plato, P-L-A-Y-D-O-H, and Plato have in common? Today's text is Isaiah chapter 56, one through eight, and the title is The Everlasting Name the three words that must have popped out as you have heard this text uh, might have been something like this. Sabbath, foreigner, eunuchs. 
Sabbath and foreigners I can deal with. Eunuchs, I didn't know what to do with their presence in today's text, to be perfectly frank. So I would not have chosen this text if I were to preach from Isaiah. But these exercises actually make me depend on the Lord far more as I try to figure out why Scott Sauls, our senior pastor, picked that text and gave that title. Sort of like the applicants to UChicago wrecking their brains to see what Plato, the arts and crafts molding compound, have to do with Plato, the ancient Greek philosopher. Be that as in me, as uh, I'll try my best. And the other caveat is for the parents, as I'll try to explain to all of us about the significance of eunuch in today's story, my best take on that might or must come across to some of my younger friends as a rated R. So parents, please do be aware and ask your pardon in advance. So if that's okay, let's uh, pray together and we'll look at God's word. Gracious God and glorious Lord, as we look to you now in this appointed moment of hearing from your word, we must confess that some of these words utterly confound us. So we ask the Holy Spirit of God who has inspired the prophets and the apostles to write these words to come into our hearts as we hear and proclaim them. May you do your work so that you will accomplish your sovereign purpose as we sit and stand and declare that you are indeed good. Thank you and be with us in your name, amen. So the writer says, salvation is close at hand, that righteousness will soon be revealed. These are real euphonic praises of what God is and what God is about to do. The divine dramatic future foretold through the human prophetic mouthpiece calling for the listener and the reader of Isaiah's oracles to take seriously the present implications about telling of the future. So we've been, as a congregation, going through the book of Isaiah, and one of the couple of things uh, by way of reminder. One is that this is a prophetic book, meaning that it's a prophecy, and prophecy, among other things, tells about the events that are yet to come, right? So it's about uh, things that have yet to transpire in the life of Israel, in the life of the prophet Isaiah, and yet God has inspired this person to write them as a signpost of letting the people of God know that God is, for lack of a better term, for real. That what God says will happen, who God says is true. And the other thing that we need to remember about the book of Isaiah is that it may seemingly have nothing to do with contemporary Christian life, and yet upon closer inspection, hopefully we'll get to see that it has a lot to do with our life. A couple of these words that will also be circulating in our sermon today will be words that are somewhat familiar with, insider and outsider. So uh, the three points to today's sermon are as follows. One, we are all by nature outsiders, all right? So we're all by nature outsiders. Two, God destroys the insider-outsider distinction. Three, God, the ultimate insider, became the true outsider in Jesus Christ. God, the ultimate insider, became the true outsider in Jesus Christ. 
So again, we'll talk a lot about insider, outsider, and why it might matter in some significant ways, and also why it does not matter at all in this new covenant. It is, in other words, a sort of an ironic inversion of human priorities and perspectives. So first, to the uh, first point is we are all by nature outsiders. How many of you like to be insiders? I want to be an insider. Okay, thank you, Tim. What about those, I want to be an outsider. I want to be an outsider. Yep, I try this every time and nobody puts their hands up. That's right. By nature, we like to be insiders. If you go to Washington, D.C., the Beltway, they all say, ah, I want to be a D.C. insider. I want to know what's going on, what people are talking about behind closed doors because I want to know what our nation is going to do. In your schools, in your offices, you want to be insiders. When you're at home, you want to be an insider rather than an outsider. So almost all of our life, we have awareness, however clear or dim it may be, whether we are in or out. Do you remember that? I remember it when I was a little child. I was about seven years old. My sister was playing with her friends, uh, and they were doing these jump rope kind of things. I forgot exactly what you call them, but at least when I was growing up, that was usually done by girls. And I, I liked my sister, and I guess I didn't have my friends at the time, so I wanted to play with her. So I asked her and her friends if I could join them, and they said no. They said no because you're a boy, you shouldn't be playing that. Or I forgot exactly what, but that was the gist of it. So as a about seven or eight-year-old boy, I felt the acute reality of being an outsider to this game, right? And throughout our life, I mean, I wish that was the only time that I felt like an outsider, or I wish there were more times that I felt like an insider, but throughout my life journey, as we will share throughout the sermon today, that this is part of what it means to be human, to desire inclusion and to experience exclusion, and back and forth, back and forth. It could be as early as in our sandboxes. Some kids might say, hey, play with us. You're on our team. Or you might be the last one picked or none at all. Such memories are with us. Unless you're like a few of my friends, like Kevin, who's at our church, who have been crushing it from their mother's womb and doing it all the way through their life march, I think most of us know what it means to be in and out, out and in. So who makes these silly rules of who is in and who is out? I wonder about that sometimes. It seems that the Bible is also quite clear about who is in and who is out and why. Take, for example, the story of Genesis and the primordial fall of Adam and Eve. This individual and local account has universal and cataclysmic consequences. This story indicates rather unequivocally that our fall had much to do with our exercise of free will that led us to uh, away rather than to God. We actually chose to be outsiders to the covenant of life and work, but we did so firmly and fully believing that we will become insiders by taking the forbidden fruit and listening to the tempter and to ourselves rather than to God. Becoming like unto God, knowing good and evil independently of God's command made us outsiders, although again, Adam and Eve were convinced that they will become insiders in the economy of God. That confusion, this categorical inversion, has been plaguing human nature ever since that day, I must say. Ever since then, we have made, made much ado of who is in and who is out, who is part of this club, who is part of this society, and so on and so forth. We see these two words from today's text that clearly connote the idea and reality of being outsiders. 
the lexical choice, the word choice by prophet Isaiah for this purpose are foreigners and eunuchs. Foreigners and eunuchs. I don't know when the last time it was for you to use the word eunuch in your everyday conversation. I used it last Sunday with Howard at lunch, actually. I told him that I was preaching from this text and I said, you know, it's actually a bit of a trouble for me because I don't know how to interpret this and how to kind of, you know, present it to our context today. We'll talk, about more, we'll talk more about the eunuchs and foreigners in the second point, but suffice it to say that when Isaiah uses these words, he's talking at one level about actual foreigners and eunuchs who for reasons that will be made clear soon, felt that they were clearly out of bounds from favor and mercy from God of Israel, who desired purity from all the way around. Let me illustrate it in two ways. So my family and I lived on Vanderbilt's um, freshman campus, the Ingram Commons, for seven years, from 2008 to 2015, as I served as the faculty head of uh, Crawford House. And that was, I think, one of my highlights as a, a professor at, at Vandy. And each spring, each January to be more precise, I, along with other students, uh, experienced collectively this simultaneous joy and pain of what is called the um, bid day or sorority rush period. Is that what you call it, rush period, right? How many of you were members of sorority in different colleges? Okay, so you all know what I'm talking about, right? So it seemed to me that I was never a member of sorority nor one of fraternity. I don't, I mean, I think it's just, if you want to do it, that's fine. If you don't want to do it, that's fine. But I think I, along with the RAs, felt that pain because some young women in our house wanted to be in this one house and they didn't become a member of the particular sorority and then you settle with the other one or sometimes in the worst possible scenario, you may not get a bid. And that was apparently, and quite really, a crushing blow to their psyche and a sense of ego and sense of self. Two or three Greek letters emblazoned across their sweatshirts or hoodies or t-shirts seemed to indicate who was truly in and who was abjectly out, who was really cool and who was unfashionably cold. And we experience things like that. I mean, I, I think for me, we know that's reality inside and outside, and we experience it. We experience it even in our youth groups, I think, or in our adult groups or children's groups. We experience that. We might want to say, no, that doesn't happen. That doesn't exist, but we know it does. But I think that seven-year experience of living with these young women and men about their desires to, to be included and the experience of being excluded taught me a lot about, oh, man, that kind of stings. The second example I'd like to illustrate is by watching this short video clip with you. It's uh, one minute and 40 seconds long, and it's from one of my uh, favorite philosopher and a theologian. His name is Dr. Seuss. It's called The Sneetches. If you know that story, how many of you know the story of Sneetches? Oh, right, okay. I, I highly, highly recommend it for you to read it. If you haven't read it to your children or with your children, I encourage you to do it. If you're a big child or adult, you haven't read it, you should read it. Or if, if you're lazy to read it, just watch the YouTube video because it'll teach you a lot about identity, exclusion, and in inclusion in ways that only Dr. Seuss can teach. So can we watch it? With whom could you most really identify in that skit? Me? I felt like the guy walking like this, twinkling, twinkle, twinkle, stupid little star in some ways. Who makes up these rules about green stars? Who makes up these rules about who's in and who's out? 
And how often that becomes reasons for us to feel like they're completely, your spirits are crushed. So I want you to think about the most crushing experience you've ever had. And I want you to think about the foreigners and eunuchs that this Bible text is talking about. The eunuchs and the foreigners felt like those snitches without their stars. Felt like they're completely outsiders. They're not part of the in crowd. However, in the in crowd is defined. And then what we will see today in today's text and the sermon is God's marvelous inversion or turning around the narrative to remind the outsiders that they're actually in. To remind the eunuchs, they who had the experience of having their male organ cut off and horrific experience that you therefore have no prospect of bearing having a child, you are not a true human being, and yet God says, oh, no, 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 you, you feel like you're a dry bone, I'm going to include you. To the foreigners who feel like, you know, they're ever second-class citizen, third-class citizen, they don't really belong to the covenant of grace, to them God says, no, 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 you don't know what I'm about to do. I'm going to include you, and you're going to have to just, you're going to be shouting at the top of your voice saying, the Lord has done amazing things. You see, the beauty of the gospel as proclaimed and enacted by the people of Israel and the early church is that God is in the business of turning the tables over and thus, that leads to my second point. God destroys the insider-outsider distinctions. So I said that we are by nature outsiders because of this reality called the total depravity of humanity. That the Bible is pretty clear that we by nature desire life independently of God. Even though we hear from here and there that God is the source of all life and joy and beauty and truth, and yet we seek to establish it apart from God, and because we're really afraid that if we actually give ourselves surrendering to God, God is going to destroy us. God is going to give us second best, third best, but not the best as I really desire. So we are by nature outsiders. But then that leads to the second point, God destroys the insider-outsider, distinction. So here the text talks about foreigners and eunuchs. You may be an outsider by birth or by circumstance according to today's text. I'll say that God destroys the insider-outsider distinction by God's gracious and merciful act of radical inclusion. All right, a few words about inclusion then. We hear the word inclusion a lot and everywhere today, whether in high school classrooms or college websites whether in corporate America or inside Madison Avenue's conference rooms discussing the way to monetize on our mantra of inclusion. So often these wonderful concepts of diversity and inclusion and embrace rather than uniformity, exclusion, and rejection have their roots in the gospel, the Exodus story for Israel, and the story of Jesus. And yet, for many secular atheists, they think that the idea of inclusion, identity, and diversity are traceable products of the secular revolution of 1789 or the French Revolution, also known as, and I say that that's not entirely correct. Neither is it true as many conservatives think that the ideas, and conservative Christians included, some of them, that these ideas have nothing to do with Christianity. These ideas of inclusion and identity and diversity are predicated, I would say, on this crucial and fundamental concept of Christianity. Ready for this? Transformation through conversion. At the core of the Christian gospel is God's desire and design to transform us according to his wonderful plan through conversion. 
that God will be the one who will reorient my calendar, your calendar, my bank account, your bank account, our mating patterns, our drinking behavior, our reading habits, our musical tests, taste, and ultimately and most inclusively, our worldview. God will graciously include me and you and bestow upon us a new identity. And with God, there is true diversity. And we'll get back to this at the end of the sermon. As I mentioned to you earlier, foreigners and eunuchs, two words that may not be part of our vocabulary on a daily basis. These two people, these two groups were emblematic of the two groups who felt like ultimate outsiders from the God of Israel and the community defined and created by the Torah. And yet, let's take a listen to these exhilarating words of embrace, inclusion, and transformation of identity. Listen to what God says. In verse 3, let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuchs complain, I am only a dry tree. Furthermore, to the same eunuchs who felt that due to his physiological deficiency because of the trauma done to his genitalia, who believed thus he was less than a human being and certainly outside of the bounds of God's blessing, the Lord declares, I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. Friends, as I said, the title of today's sermon is an enduring, the everlasting name. And when I first saw that title, I thought that it was about God. It was referring to God. But as you read, the everlasting name that will be given to is to who? The eunuchs, who felt like they were complete outsiders. You know, you and I actually have a lot in common with these eunuchs. You know why? They could not have children, thus they were really afraid of this one thing, and that is being forgotten. Being forgotten. You know, you live your life doing whatever you do and you get forgotten. People completely forget you. They suffer from some kind of collective amnesia and they see you, but they don't know who you are. They have no recollection of you, no remembrance of you. And that would be a horrible thing, right? You live your life only to be forgotten completely. That's why the Lord says you will be a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. What does that mean? Most of us, we are remembered by our families, yes? Right? My, our friends may not be at our funerals or may not even remember us, but our families will remember us. That is at least our hope. That our families will, So when it says that, you know what, your name will be better than having sons and daughters, that means God will do such a wonderful thing that these eunuchs who felt like they're completely cut off from God, literally and figuratively, that they will be included and grafted in so that you will be remembered. Well, guess what? They are being remembered in July 2019 here in Nashville, Tennessee. A group of Gentiles here are talking about these eunuchs and saying that what a wonderful thing that God prophesied that they will be included. You see how the prophecy has come true. So what is the criterion for this inclusion for the foreigner and the eunuch? This is very, very important. Because when the secular uh, culture talks about inclusion, that means you don't have to change at all. You just come the way you are and we'll just leave you alone. There is a universality of invitation. Come the way you are. But the gospel inclusion is that we will, Jesus says, come all of you who are heavy, burdened, and weary, and I will give you rest. Two things. Jesus says, you know, I know you must be tired. You must be full of anxieties and ambivalences and anger and all the ideations that are negative about your current situation. 
And Jesus says, I don't care where you are, but come. As you come, as you take the first step, as I have made the first step for you, as you will do so, what I'll do is I'll change your heart. I'll transform you. I'll transform you into the beautiful bride that you could not dare imagine was possible. And so, and Jesus says, you come to me and not to other deities, not to other things, not to other, you know, don't, don't go to her, don't go to him, don't go to them. Come to me for I will give you that rest. Because in Jesus, there is a dismantling of the Jewish and Gentile separation and the wall of hostility. The criterion is coming to Jesus, but as in this text, it is the word Sabbath or Sabbath keeping. What does that mean, Sabbath? Our culture is not a Sabbath keeping culture, right? I mean, things are open on Sundays and things are open on Saturdays. I mean, I you know, had a chance to go to Israel recently with about 15 students from a local high school, including one of our own members here, John, and, and had a great time uh, learning about the different culture and what they do do over there is keep the Sabbath as a very sacrosanct reality. The Saturday, everything is closed until sundown. Friday sundown till Saturday sundown, uh, everything is closed as a way of remembering that God is our keeper of our calendars. God to God belong our life. According to Alec Motier, this wonderful commentator on Isaiah, he says that this Sabbath keeping around the time of the writing, writing of Isaiah had fallen on hard times, especially as a text written as a prophecy of Israel's exile community, this would pack a mighty punch. He writes this, Persians, Babylonians, Canaanites, Egyptians, Greeks, none of these people ever thought of stopping work as the Hebrew word Shabbat means literally, one day in seven so as to give ordinary people a complete day of rest. So think of it like this. The Sabbath principle is divinely ordained mode of giving human beings a day of rest and cessation from labor so as to be recreated, so as to be replenished and recharged, so as to get back into labor, whatever that may be. But if we have seven days 24-7, then that's a problem according to this. And so the, what God is saying is this. As these foreigners and eunuchs, as they remember the Sabbath, that means remembering that God, in, God is in control, firm control of their life. Even though you may feel like you're an outsider or second-class citizen, even though you may feel like you can never have children, thus you're deprived of that blessing. So many cultures have talked about having children as a direct blessing from the Lord then and even now. And God says, you know what? Even if you are childless, even if you can never have it, that does not make you out of bounds from the covenant blessings here. Regardless of whether you're born a foreigner to the covenant of grace or whether your life circumstances have brought you to be a eunuch, always ashamed of your identity as less than a sexually whole being, God says, I'm going to shower upon you these wonderful blessings. Again, these two groups stood for the sum total of those who might feel that they were out of the scope of divine blessings. So Isaiah is, Isaiah is announcing a universal inclusion of all people, no matter their national origin, ancestry, accent of birth, or familial or individual affiliation to gods and goddesses, or falling before the creational standards of God, as Motia writes, or deep and fundamental personal defect, such as eunuchs. He goes on to write, the middle wall of partition have come down, tumbling down between people and people and between people and the Lord. 
Let me try to illustrate it, and this is rated R right here. One of the more esoteric verses in Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law, is found in chapter 23. The first verse of chapter 23, this is the Bible, it reads, no one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Shocking words. We say, ooh, that is too much. What does that even mean? See, the book of Deuteronomy, as well as other books in the, in the Pentateuch, are about emphasizing the holiness of the Lord and the purity of Yahweh. And so, in that earlier period, such individuals, certainly including eunuchs, then they were not fit to enter into the assembly of the Lord. That means they had reasons to really ask, am I actually someone who is loved by God? Am I someone that who's going to be embraced by God? Those who have been outside of the scope of divine blessing can trust that God's word and move closer because in Isaiah, it says, you know what? You might have been that and you might feel like I'm only a dry bone and I don't really belong to the family of God, but God says, not any longer. I'm about to do something that you could not have imagined and I'm about to bring you into my covenant family. To these people who felt the searing sense of shame and exclusion, God says, I'll give them a memorial and a name better than children. In other words, God promises what you think you will lack, you really lack, and the very thing that is a cause of your sense of anxiety, depression, desperation, and all other negative ideations, God says, I will wipe away. Everlasting name, everlasting name. You and I are afraid of being forgotten. God says, these eunuchs will not be forgotten. Everyone forgets you one day, no one recognizes or remembers us, but for the eunuch that was how they lived there each day, always being forgotten, always in the shadows, always in shame. God says, no more. To the foreigner, the name and, and the same, to them the Lord says, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. As these foreigners and the eunuchs remember that God is the giver of true life, that God desires that a day's rest as a way of kind of um, ascertaining that relationship that people had with God, God says, I will actually bring you to the house of prayer because my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. So if you're into reading scriptures, which I hope we are, uh, you may remember that these words get repeated in the New Testament by Jesus. In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 21, toward the end of his earthly ministry, he drives out money changers and those selling doves from the temple grounds. Why? Most scholars believe that such mercantile exchanges and activities were taking place in the court of the Gentiles, even within the temple grounds while there were Jewish uh, and Gentile distinctions, they could not and should not become grounds for exclusion and feeling of superiority and discrimination on the part of the Jews against Gentiles. And yet, at least within this particular episode and narrative, Jesus' ministry's time, foreigners who were bound to the God of Israel felt that they were being discriminated against or second-class citizens because of their Gentile origin. And that's why Jesus turned the tables and says, get out of here, for you have actually desecrated this house of God, which will be called the house of prayer for all nations. It is to these and all of us, Jesus says, as I said, come unto me, all of you who labor and heavy burden, I will give you that rest. So Jesus, God is the one who destroys the distinction between insider and outsider. 
So like I said earlier, I had a chance to go to Israel recently, and it was really a, a wonderful experience. Um, ever since I became a Christian, I always wanted to go to Israel, but never had the occasion to do so, the opportunity to do it. So I got to do it. So if you uh, get to do it, by all means, go. I think it'll actually um, increase your faith in some ways and also make you question your faith in some other ways. But all in all, it'll be a great, great experience. So this is what happened, right? So go to Jerusalem, and, and this is uh, the, right before the, the Sabbath. And, you know, there are thousands of people in there. And so walking around the streets of Jerusalem, especially following the Via Dolorosa, the seven stations that are cross, or the alleged pathways that Jesus took to uh, the cross. And each station I was meditating and thinking and really kind of participating, communing with the Lord, saying, you know, and so I felt so much like an insider, like now I see what Jesus, the path that Jesus was on. And so I felt like a, such an insider. And at the same time, I must say, in the throngs of people, amid all of these people really getting excited about the Sabbath, as I was with thousands of other people, I felt so much like an outsider. So on the one hand, I felt like an insider because I was in the city of Jesus and all that and felt like an insider. But then as a, as a non-Jew, experiencing and watching the, the whole thing of the Sabbath preparation, I felt acutely like an outsider. I felt like an outsider looking in, but I felt as if I could never be part of that. And so in that one trip, I felt like an insider and an outsider. In that one trip of life that you and I are on, you might feel, you must feel like an insider and an outsider in different moments. And God, through Jesus Christ, is in the business of dismantling such distinction of insider and outsider as Jesus, through his ministry, destroyed the walls of hostility that separated Jews and Gentiles. And that leads me to the third and the final point. God, the ultimate insider, became the true outsider in Christ. Sounds too crazy, perhaps. Here's my question. How do I preach the good news from this chapter about foreigners and eunuchs? If the good news has anything to do with Jesus, how do I do it? Let's listen to the words of verse 8 here. He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather others to them besides those already gathered. These are words of prophecy. Here we see the universal scope of the work of the salvation for the God of Israel. The God of Israel says, I am not just the God of Israel, I am in fact the God of all nations. You see the scope is God choosing a certain individuals, but the purpose of the certain individuals being chosen was not just for you to enjoy that among yourselves and that's it. It is for you to universal, you know, globalize and make it more universal, make it bigger the scope of those who are going to be beneficiaries of the work of salvation in the life of Israel and for the church. In the ministry of this former carpenter from Nazareth, which is, as we have been there, a true hick town in Israel today, and Jesus is from that city. And that really was to me, I was sharing with some of the friends, that Nazareth was back then a hick town, not a very nondescript and poor city, and it still is. And you know, in, in God's economy, I think, you know, in Israel, I think there's, um, uh, you know, Nazareth has the highest population density of Muslims, and they're not very, and that particular city is not rich at all. And I thought to myself, how providentially ironic that Jesus, who had everything, who was the ultimate insider, came and lived in this hick town called Nazareth. 
Thus, people said, can anything good come from Nazareth? He came from that area. He came from that area where no good thing comes out. And this Jesus is the one who was the ultimate insider yet became one of us, becoming the outsider. You see, it's like this. Jesus says in John 10, 6, 16, I have other sheep too that are not part of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. This is both a fulfillment and foretelling. Fulfillment in that the words of Isaiah, I'll gather others besides those already gathered, is fulfilled in the mission of this Jewish man who had pretensions to be the unique son of Yahweh, which turned out to be true. Was also foretelling in that the mission of the disciples of Jesus was to supersede the Jewish Gentile distinctions to become a truly global phenomenon. Friends, before we close this sermon, I really want you to once again think about the feeling of being excluded that foreigners and eunuchs had. From that video clip, think of those star, you know, non-star belly snitches. Feeling of your own experience of being like an outsider. Because if you don't understand that, then we really don't understand the radical nature of the inclusion and the gracious nature of the inclusion that God accomplishes through Jesus Christ, who was the unique son of God, very God of very God, yet for our sake and for our salvation, as the Nicene Creed says, became human for us. Theologians have called the ministry of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus, as a period of humiliation. That God became one of us, lived among us, and died a shameful death of state execution. If you see a cross, you know what that stands for? It's a powerful emblem of Roman Empire saying that we are in charge. We can put whoever we want to death. And those individuals who are put to death by crucifixion, that means they have no right to live. They're the worst kinds of people that walked on the face of the earth as far as Roman Empire is concerned. And that was Jesus, your Lord, my Lord, and our God. None of us would think that someone who receives a state sanction, execution of crucifixion, or other means of death today as a cultural or political or social insider, quite the opposite. And yet that's precisely what Jesus embraced for us. Isaiah foretells of the radical inclusion of those people who had been excluded and the means of accomplishing this was going to sound crazy, counterintuitive, and scandalous. That's why so many people even today don't find the gospel of Jesus Christ true or worthy of belief because how can that be true? How can God become a human being and why would God go through that kind of shameful period to be sentenced to death, to be crucified? You see, many of us have been sort of habituated or enculturated in Christianity that it no longer scandalizes us when we hear about the crucifixion. You see, I mean, imagine, I've said this many times, and pardon me if you have heard it many times already, but imagine we come to a church in 4019, and instead of a crucifix, we see, I don't know, let's say electric chair as a sign and emblem of state-sanctioned execution. You'd be horrified. You'd be like, what are you all doing? This doesn't make any sense. And yet that is exactly the kind of scandal that Roman citizens will experience if they were to come to Christ's press today. Because that symbol is not a symbol of power, at least by the ones who embrace the crucifixion. It is a sign of shame. It is a sign of exclusion. It is a sign of death. So the ultimate insider, God himself in Jesus Christ, became the outsider for you and for me. 
The prophetic future about the suffering servant has come true in Jesus Christ. Let me finish our sermon by reading uh, this passage from another prophetic text. I think you might be familiar with it, actually. This text reads, I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is the faith that I go back to the south with. So let me ask you, who wrote these words? Help me out. MLK, that's right. Martin Luther King Jr. And what part of scripture was he using just there? Look at the screen, Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40, it is a quotation from that beautiful text that speaks of what God will do for the people of God. And he goes on to say, with this faith we'll be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith we'll be able to transform the jangled discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. So you're right, it is Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. In much of our cultural discourse about MLK, many among my secular friends don't often think of Dr. King as Reverend Dr. King. They think, oh, he was some kind of activist. Yeah, he was an activist, all right, but his activism and desire for justice was stemming from his commitment to the God of justice, the God of Isaiah. Then Reverend King writes, let freedom ring from the mighty mountains of New York. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. But not only that, let freedom ring from the snow mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and molehill of Mississippi. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. When we allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every city and every hamlet, from every state and every nation, we'll be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black and white, Jew and Gentile, Protestant and Catholic will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, great God Almighty, we are free at last. Friends, do you desire that freedom? Do you desire that freedom that Christ promises? Do you know that it is through the crucified and resurrected work of Christ and only through that you can be free? Let those words sink into your hearts. The desiring freedom that you and I desire can only be had through Jesus Christ. When the Son of Man sets you free, then you shall be free indeed. He says, then let's prepare our hearts by bowing our heads as we're about to receive the body of Christ broken for us and the blood of Jesus shed for us in the Eucharist. Why is that? Because this meal is proclaiming and participating in the reality of freedom we have in Jesus Christ. He who was the ultimate insider became an outsider for you and for me so that we can partake of these elements and enjoy the freedom we have in God through Christ. Because in him, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither male nor female, neither Greek or any other thing because in Christ, God is all in all and we are all in the Lord. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you for these words that were written by the prophet Isaiah. We have done our bumbling best to hear it, interpret it, proclaim it, and seek to practice it. We thank you for the means of grace that are appointed here for our enhancement of faith.
that is this Lord's Supper that is before us. As we come with a hungering heart, as we come with broken hearts, as we come realizing that none of our desserts can prepare us for this meal, help us to know that the only preparation is our recognition of our ill-preparedness, that you will embrace us, you will transform us, you will rekindle within us the right desire to seek the kingdom. Thank you, and we love you for you have loved us first. In your name we pray, amen.